All right, thank you, Jake and band. This morning you will need a Bible. You can take it out and find the short book of First John. This will be week one in a summer-long walk through the book of First John. We put the Gospel of John on hold. We left off at the end of John 12. We'll pick up in the fall right where we left off, John 13. And over the summer months, we're going to look at the short book, the short letter of 1 John. And I'll just preface the series and preface the sermon this morning by saying I really, really love this book of the Bible. I think as a pastor, you're supposed to love all the books in the Bible, and I do, and I affirm that, but this is one that I particularly love. Uh, I love this book because it's so clear. It's so straightforward. I love this book because it's so practical and so applicable to everyday life. I love this book because in this book, John doesn't pull any punches and he gets right up in your face and he steps on your toes. And so this is a book of the Bible uh, that I really, really love. This book of the Bible is a letter and it's a unique letter when you look at other letters in the New Testament, and that the author is never mentioned on the pages of the Bible, of the the pages of the text. It's a little bit like getting a text message from a number that you don't have saved in your phone. I got several of those this week for my birthday. People sent me a, a happy birthday text, and maybe they had a new phone number. Maybe I had just never saved their number. And you're grateful to get a message like that, but you also sort of want to know before you respond, who is texting me? Who's sending me this message? Who's extending these birthday wishes? And the book of 1 John is a little bit like that. If you just look at the text, the author is not identified. However, the overwhelming testimony of church history tells us that the apostle John wrote this letter. There's lots of theories, lots of uh, possible speculation about who the author was, but the The really, really solid testimony from church history is that this is the Apostle John. And so just to help you think through who we're talking about here, this is John, the son of Zebedee. This is John, more than likely the baby brother, little brother of James. We assume that because James is typically mentioned first when the two of them are mentioned together, James and John. This is John who took care of Mary. You remember Jesus on the cross saying, woman, behold your son, son, your mother. And that was John, the beloved disciple who took care of Mary. John, who according to church tradition, church history, ended up in Ephesus, pastoring in Ephesus. And John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So church history tells us with pretty good confidence, this is the author, John the Apostle, is the author of this book. One thing we don't know is who he was writing to. And again, there's speculation and there's theories and all sorts of things out there about who his audience actually was. We really don't know who he was writing to, the particular people that he had in mind. We do know without any question or doubt why he was writing. There's not just a single why. There's actually a number of, of wise. John wrote this letter for a number of reasons, and I'll just sort of jump ahead and give you a, a preview of what we'll see in this book. First John chapter 1, verse 4, 
He wrote for joy. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And we're going to talk about that idea of joy this morning. John also wrote for holiness, 1 John 2.1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He wants his audience, whoever it was, to pursue holiness. He writes to talk about the gospel. 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. The gospel is motivating John to write. He's writing to defend and to stand and to fight for the truth. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There's people presenting an alternate view of who Jesus is and what the gospel is, and he's saying, I don't want you to be deceived, and so I'm writing this to sort of set you straight. And then maybe the biggest reason of all, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think this is the big one that dominates the entire book consistently. John is writing that we would have assurance of our salvation, that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the book is filled with tests. We'll see them almost every week in the Gospel of John. Tests. And these tests help us determine, am I in a relationship with the Father, or am I not in a relationship with the Father? And I'll just sort of jump ahead without talking about the specific tests John used, and I'll mention this. John doesn't use the tests that we typically use. We talk to people sometimes who are wrestling with assurance, and we say things like, well, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Well, have you walked an aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer? Well, are you a member of a church? Well, are you, are you uh, somebody who has been baptized or are you participating in the, the ordinances, the sacraments? Uh, churches and pastors and Christians, we have all these tests we use today. John uses none of our tests. In fact, the tests that John is going to lay out in this book at times make us uncomfortable because many of them are unfamiliar to us. We're going to talk about those tests throughout the summer. Here's the big idea of our passage, the first four verses of the letter of 1 John, our joy is rooted in the story of Jesus. That's the big idea of this first little section. Our joy is rooted in the story of Jesus. And so what we're going to do is read this passage together. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Scripture will be on the screen as well. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word of God says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things 
so that our joy may be complete. That's the word of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate in worship, to sing praises to you. Father, we would much rather be together in this room singing and and lifting our voices together, but we're thankful for the opportunity to sing and to worship this morning. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word, and we thank you for this short book, this letter of 1 John. Lord, open our eyes this morning and over the weeks to come. Father, give us humility to submit ourselves to the various tests that John is going to set in front of us. Lord, we want to know that we have eternal life. Lord, and if we don't have eternal life, we also want to know that. And so we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts, that you would expose us and reveal truth to us. Father, do that this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Human beings love to tell stories. This is something that's true in all cultures and all places of the world. We tell stories for a number of different, different reasons. Sometimes we tell stories to make sense of life, just to help us understand reality as we experience it. Sometimes we tell stories to entertain, uh, comedies, uh, tragedies. Sometimes we tell stories just to, to entertain an audience. Sometimes we tell stories to educate and to teach and to take the next generation and to bring them up with a worldview that is consistent with ours. We also tell stories to get to know people. Maybe you've had an experience like this. You sit down face-to-face or you sit down screen-to-screen with somebody for the first time. Uh, You're getting to know them. I I had a meeting this week over Zoom with somebody that I've never met. He lives on a completely different continent, and we were talking about a a seminary issue that he was dealing with. We never met each other, and so we began this conversation with stories. Tell me your story. Where are you from? What's your family life like? How did you become a believer? Well, let me tell you my story. And we exchange stories. And as you listen to somebody's story in a situation like that, typically your mind sort of alerts and you say, hey, you've had an experience like that. I've had an experience like that. And your stories may connect or overlap in some point. I'm going to admit to you that the book of 1 John isn't a story. But this morning, I want you to see that the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, begins with a story. These first four verses aren't just a story. They're really the story. It's a story, as we look at these four verses, that encompasses the entirety of human history. We're going to talk this morning about eternity past all the way forward to eternity future. This story, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, it encompasses every person who has ever or will ever live on the earth, and it's a story that centers on Jesus. And the question we want to answer this morning is really very simple. As we think about this story that John is introducing to us, what does John want us to know about the Jesus story? And I'm going to say some things, I'm going to share some things with you that are pretty easy to wrap your mind around. We're actually going to start with a couple of ideas that are quite difficult to wrap your mind around. Here's the first thing John wants us to know. The Jesus story begins in eternity 
past. It's an old story. It's an ancient story. Look at 1 John 1.1. He starts with this opening. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. If I were to sit down with you and maybe your children or grandchildren and open a book and the book had a castle and a, uh, maybe a mountain scene and the book started with once upon a time in a faraway land, you would hear that opening phrase and you would say, okay, this is a fairy tale. There's going to be princes and kings and queens and princesses and maybe a dragon and maybe a bad guy. This is a fairy tale that we're about to talk about. If I were to start a story that looked like this, that said a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, some of you would immediately get goosebumps and you would say, here we go, a new episode of the Star Wars saga. That phrase takes your mind to a specific type of story. John's doing something similar if you've been paying attention to the Old Testament and the New Testament. As he introduces this story, he starts with this. That which was from the beginning. Makes you think about John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and everything that was made was made through him, and nothing came into existence that did not come into existence through him. He existed in the beginning. And when John begins the Gospel of John in that way, he's taking you back to another story, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when John begins this story, he pulls that idea of the beginning out, and it makes you think of John 1, 1, and it makes you think of Genesis 1, 1, and he says this story begins in the beginning. Before there was time, an eternity passed, and he's starting the story, he's, he's introducing the story this way to teach us something about Jesus. He's teaching us that Jesus is the infinite, eternal creator. He is God who existed in the beginning. So the story begins in eternity past. It moves forward to include the incarnation. The Jesus story includes God becoming man. That's the incarnation. Look at verse 1, 2, and 3 in 1 John, and just pay attention to the sensory words, right? Verse 1, we have heard something with our ears. We have seen it with our eyes. We've looked on it. He says we've touched it with our hands. This was no hologram. This was no phantom. This was no illusion. We touched it with our hands. Verse 2, it was made manifest. We, we have seen it. We're proclaiming this to you, something that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, he's still just grasping for sensory words. He says, we've seen it and we've heard it. This is the greatest miracle, the greatest mystery in the entire Bible. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. It's that the infinite, eternal, creator God who existed in the beginning, in the fullness of time, took on flesh and dwelt among human beings. The one 
who created the world walked on it. The creator came to live with the creature. And they saw him. And they heard him. And they touched him. This is a remarkable, remarkable story. It's a remarkable miracle. This is a miracle we sing about usually in December. Usually we get past Thanksgiving and we start to sing Christmas carols. Uh, We start to sing Christmas hymns. We sing about the birth of Jesus. That's a good time of year to sing about the birth of Jesus. But there's some Christmas songs that we ought to really sing all of the year. There's some Christmas songs we should never sing even at Christmas, to be clear. But there's some Christmas songs that we should sing all of the time. I'll just give you one example. Charles Wesley. He wrote a hymn called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Look at the doctrine. Look at the theology of this miracle of the incarnation. He says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, right? Eternity past in the beginning. Latent time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. This is the eternal creator God Now veiled in flesh, and we see him. We saw him, John says. We heard him. We touched him. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Now look, these are two heady concepts. This story beginning in eternity past, this Jesus story begins in eternity past and includes the incarnation, God becoming man. Those are abstract ideas. They're hard things to wrap your mind around. I just need you to understand if you lose these doctrines, you lose Christianity. There's no Christian message. There's no Christian church. There's no Christian gospel apart from these doctrinal truths. And one of the things we're going to see in the book of 1 John is that the entire book is filled with with references to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You cannot get away from them. It's like you're swimming in theology. You're just completely immersed in it. Here's another another illustration. This is a Bible scholar named Robert Yarbrough. He says these letters, and he's talking about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. These letters are not simply theological, as one might say ale is alcoholic. They are rather theology distill it, analogous to highest proof grain alcohol that is highly flammable and intoxicating even in small amounts. And he goes on to say this, God suffuses every situation John envisions. Each piece of counsel he issues, every sentiment he conveys, each affirmation he sets forth. I love the way he describes this book. He says it's theology distill it. You cannot get away from doctrinal truth about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit when you're reading the the book of 1 John. I'm not sure how many church-going folks in the Bible Belt today are interested in theology distill it. I question that, and I say that because if you go to a typical Christian bookstore, what you see on the bestseller shelf, which, by the way, are the books that sell the best, are not theology distillate books. They're just sort of shallow books, practical books, five steps towards this or that 
type books. That's typically what you find in most churches from pulpits and in Sunday school classes is not a heavy dose of theology and doctrine, is not serious wrestling with God who existed in the beginning in eternity past who then took on flesh and became human. That's not what you typically hear. You typically hear sort of shallow, very, very accessible self-help type messages. That's not what you see in the book of 1 John. It's biblical, it's doctrinal, it's theological. You can't get away from it. You're completely immersed in this doctrine of God in this book. It's part of the story. It's an essential part of the story. And here's the beauty of 1 John. For all this doctrine and all this focus on God and all of this theology that's crammed into almost every single verse, there's a reference to God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. The book is actually very practical. And in the end, we don't have to sacrifice one for the other. We don't have to say, well, are you going to be theological or are you going to be practical? First John cuts the knot down the middle and he says, yes, we're going to do all of it. There is no point in being practical if it's not rooted in the truth of our story, in who God is, and in Jesus, God incarnate. Very theological, very practical. Here's the third thing John wants us to know about this story. It's a story that must be proclaimed. It's a story that must be proclaimed. If you look at verse 2, there's two words I want to draw your attention to. You might want to mark them if you like to make marks in your Bible. One of the words is the, the English word testify, and the other word is the English word proclaim. Testify and proclaim. The English word testify in Greek is the word martyreo. We get our English word martyr from this word. The idea of a martyr is someone who bears witness. And as we use the word martyr, we're typically thinking about someone who bears witness to the truth, even at great cost to themselves, even at the cost of losing their life. And the idea of a, a, someone who is testifying is that they are eyewitnesses. It's, it's sort of courtroom language. It's John saying, I saw it, and I heard it, and I touched it, and now I'm going to tell you about it. The second word is proclaim. It's the Greek word apangelo. Our word angel, the Greek word angel, is related to this word. And an angel in the Bible is simply a messenger, someone who delivers a message on behalf of somebody else. And when John says we're proclaiming something to you, that's the idea. We've received a message, and we are simply passing that message along to you to testify and to proclaim. That's who we are as Christians. That's part of our spiritual DNA. You cannot separate these truths or these ideas out from what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There were eyewitnesses who saw and heard and touched Jesus. And they have testified as eyewitnesses to what they experienced. Our job is to take that message and to proclaim it, to proclaim it with confidence and with boldness. That's the heart of missions. 
Look, when we send out missionaries or we go on a mission trip, there are a lot of activities that fall under that umbrella in missions, but that's the heart of it. We have a message to proclaim to you. When you share the gospel in an evangelistic setting with someone at work or someone in your family, that's the heart of it. The heart of it's not arguing. The heart of it's not debating. The heart of it's not trying to be smarter than someone else. The heart of it is saying, I have something to proclaim to you. That's the heart of Christian discipleship. It's walking alongside somebody in life saying, here's a message that I need to proclaim to you. This is what we proclaim. The holy God has made a way for sinful people like me and you to be brought back into a relationship with him. And that way is actually a person, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, bearing the punishment and the curse that should have fallen to us. And then he rose from the dead three days later. He sent his disciples out, his followers out, proclaiming a message Go everywhere and tell everyone, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that we proclaim. That's our story. There's a man named John Stott. Some of you may have heard of this man. He was an Anglican theologian. He died in 2011. In 2005, which is not all that long ago, Time Magazine named him one of the most 100 influential, not Christians, but people, 100 most influential people on the planet, John Stott. He warned many, many years ago about the danger of drawing people to church apart from proclaiming the gospel. And he said, you know, you can use politics, really doesn't matter what wing of the political spectrum you're on. You can use politics to draw people to a religious environment. You can entertain them. There's lots of ways to entertain people. You can entertain people with the latest cutting-edge type music and, and lights and lasers and hazers, or you can entertain people with organs and pianos and choir robes and choir lofts. You can entertain lots of different ways. You can use pop psychology the latest, greatest advice from this daytime host or this expert. You can use charismatic personalities, somebody who's just so over the top that you almost can't look away. You can pick a social issue and you can champion that to draw people in. John Stott said, look, there's lots of ways to draw people in, to draw a crowd But he warned many years ago, if you want to draw people to Jesus, if you want to gather people to a church, you'd better proclaim the gospel. And you'd better not allow any of these other things to become central. In fact, he looks at all these other things, and this is what he calls them, superficial social camaraderie. You can gather a group around any of those things, but it's just superficial social camaraderie camaraderie. What he's saying is we gather people to the church through the proclamation of the gospel. And when we do that, the result is what John calls fellowship. That's the fourth part of the story. The Jesus story gives us fellowship. You'll see this in verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. It exists on two levels. One, it exists on a horizontal level. The good news of the gospel that we proclaim, this story of Jesus, restores our fellowship with God vertically. It also exists on a horizontal level. This good news of the Jesus story that we proclaim creates fellowship with each other on a horizontal level. You know, on a typical Sunday, we talk a lot about the vertical, that you need fellowship with the Father. But I think most of us have learned over the last few weeks that while this is essential, the vertical fellowship with God is essential, we also need the horizontal fellowship with God's people. And we can do Facebook Live and we can do Zoom and we can have email blasts and text messages and FaceTime and all those things. We're going to use them as long as we need to. But I know and you know, seven, eight weeks into this experiment, it's not the same. And John is saying to us, the Jesus story restores your fellowship vertically with God. That's eternal life. And it's very, very important but it also creates fellowship horizontally with the people of God. Verse 3, the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. It's the idea that a group of people unite around shared beliefs, shared values, shared goals, and a shared mission. Essentially, they buy in to the same story. People look for this, whether they know the Greek word koinonia or not, they look for this in all sorts of places today. Go to a college campus, you will find people looking for fellowship in Greek life, a a fraternity or a sorority. Looking at fraternity brothers or sorority sisters to, to fill this sort of void in their life. Other people look to a sports team. We sort of band together in our tribes and who we pull for and who we root for. I I go visit my in-laws and right across the street, uh, their neighbor has their address painted on the curb and right next to their address, there's a Jayhawk painted. And I've never met those people, but every time I drive by, I think, yeah, I kind of like those folks. I like these people. They're nice folks. I I feel a connection with them. And we do that with our sports team. Are, Are you a Cowboys fan? Yes or no? Right, Because we're going to the Super Bowl this year, so now's a chance to get on the bandwagon. we got Andy Dalton as a backup quarterback. Here we go. Uh, are you a, a Rangers fan or an Astros fan? Do you pull for people with integrity or for the team that cheats? I mean, pick a team. It's up to you. And we tribal up in, in this way. We look for fellowship. The world says maybe you should look at your national identity. Right? The country stamped on your passport, and those are your people. Or other people say it's not so much what's on your passport, but it's what's on your, your DNA report from 23andMe or Ancestry.com. What's your ethnicity? Those are your true people. We're looking for fellowship. Maybe the closest place that people find this sort of relationship is when they serve in the military or they serve as a first responder, a, a police officer, or a fireman. You talk to to people who have served in those capacities and they come back, they don't talk about fellow soldiers, they talk about brothers. 
They don't talk about fellow firemen or police officers. They say, those are my brothers. And they've experienced something that just sort of hints at what John is describing. But what John is saying, think about this, is that the closeness we experience with God the Father through the Jesus story, that closeness, he says, that's fellowship with the Father. We have a relationship with the Father. And then he uses the exact same word. He doesn't describe it differently. He describes it exactly the same. You have a a restored relationship vertically, and you have new restored relationships horizontally. And the closeness that you experience with God the Father through the gospel should be a mirror, should be a, a picture of the closeness you experience with your church family in relationship, shared beliefs, shared values, shared goals, a shared mission, and it's all rooted in a shared story. One last thought, the Jesus story results in joy. Verse 4 is sort of the icing on this cake. Verse 4 says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And when John says that, you now get the logic of what he's doing in this opening paragraph. As he's introducing this Jesus story. This is what he's saying. I'm writing this book. I'm writing this Jesus story. Because I saw it. And I heard it. And I touched it. And now I'm proclaiming it to you. And through this story... You can have a restored relationship, fellowship with the Father, and new relationships, fellowship with other believers. Through this story, you have a mission, a a gospel to go proclaim to the world, a story to tell. Through this story that begins in the beginning, includes the incarnation, and reaches all the way into the future, we have joy. I'm writing this to you so that our joy may be complete. This is something we have to beat into our heads over and over and over again. The story of Jesus, the story that we're invited into, does not mean giving up fun things and good things and pleasurable things and delightful things and settling for something that's dry and dull and boring. John says exactly the opposite is the the truth. I'm writing so that you might have joy, so that our joy may be complete. Remember, there's a new horizontal relationship. So when he says our joy, he's talking about his readers and his own and all of the people who are part of the Jesus story. He says, I want our joy to be complete. I want it to be full now, and I want it to be full into eternity future. My prayer, as we work our way through this short book over the summer months, is that you know that joy. Not only that you are part of that joy and you're receiving that joy and you're experiencing that joy, but that you know that you have it. 1 John 5.13, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I pray that as we work our way through this book, you have found your place in the Jesus story 
and gospel assurance is settled and rooted in your heart. I also pray that as we work our way through this book over the summer months, that for some of you, eyes would be opened and you would realize, I I don't pass the tests that John is laying out. I mean, he's telling me how I can know that I have eternal life, and I, I don't pass those tests. I pass the baptism test. I pass the pray a prayer test. I pass the VBS test. I, I pass the serve at church test, but I don't pass John's test. And my prayer for those of you who are in that category is that over these summer months, the Word of God would work in your life, that you would see that you don't pass these tests and that you would enter this story that by God's grace, the Jesus story would become your story and that our joy would be full. Let's pray together.